Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are tuned in to the Foul Weather Podcast. The forecast to your next successful hunt. Coming to you from the home office, Jack's Reef, New York. The story about how ducks run guns and that guns don't run ducks. Also, how I shot a deer in the ass and it died in 15 seconds. The return of rain to the south. And your weekly duck migration forecast. All on today's episode of the Foul Weather Podcast. We thank our weekly listeners. You know who you are. Those that never miss a single weekly migration forecast episode each Monday morning. Y'all are ate up as much as me about ducks, duck biology, and duck migration. You know where the ducks are at before the ducks know where they're at. Think about that. You know where the ducks are at before the ducks know where they are at. Our dedicated weekly listeners can pick the best days to hunt because the Foul Weather Podcast forecasts fresh ducks. Hot from the north. Ducks hot from the north. Shoot the ducks from the north before they know where they're at. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, coming to you from the home office in Jack's Reef. So let's start with that deer I shot in the ass. Obviously not intentional, and as noted in episode 11 last week, we've had just about zero good rut activity at the home farm here in Jack's Reef. So I decided to give some swamp bucks a try over in the Montezuma region. Uh, We duck hunted this place uh, last week and dropped a camera on a tree and hung a stand downwind of some scrapes in the nearby woods just to see what we could find. There really wasn't much going on. Um, but you know, cameras lie this time of year, it's the rut. So you just go, you just go for about two weeks. So, but on Thursday morning of last week, the day I was going to go, you know, have a set, we got a decent two and a half year old, you know, eight point freshening a scrape right in front of, right in front of the stand, right on camera. And this is a waiter in kind of waiter out spot. So chest waiters in chest waiters out. So you carry your bow, crossbow, rifle, whatever, and boots to cross into this little island of kind of perfect deer woods with about a 100-acre fallow field adjacent to it. So it was a cold day, and you always got that sweat going on getting into this spot, you know, hauling yourself through the marsh. It gets to be about maybe, I don't know, thigh deep at at points. Um, It's just a little bit of stuff we got to go through across a kind of below a beaver dam. It's pretty pretty gnarly, a lot of briars and stuff going in too. So. But I got, you know, I got up in the stand. I got chilled kind of quickly, about 35 degrees with a 10-mile-an-hour wind kind of directly in my face. Um, I did a drag line in with docent and hung it on the shrub in front of the stand. You know, dumb me. I just, you know, I don't really plan well for deer hunting. I mean, I'm mostly a duck hunter and and, you know, we deer hunt as well. But I just cut like the bottom of a white t-shirt off and used some jute, tied that up, you know, doused it in docent and drug it along and then hung it. And it was kind of flapping in the breeze. Um, And I'm looking at it going, this isn't good. You know, this white rag kind of blasting away here in the breeze. But about 730, I spotted kind of a reasonable buck headed my way, kind of from my left shoulder, about a 45 degree angle. Thought it was that eight point on camera that morning. So 
you know, he didn't seem to be in a hurry. He was kind of licking branches, sniffing around a little ruddy noticeably, um, but super slowly moved his way towards the scrapes. I was really hoping for about a 20 yard shot broadside. I stood up, you know, and he came, uh, but he came really directly between me and that scent rag kind of still blowing in the wind, right? He stopped. Um, and when he hit that scent, he kind of, he, he looked uh, and then he looked around the big silver maple in front of him and the end of my t-shirt's just flapping in the breeze. Of course, he spooks a few steps, goes right under my stand. I'm looking right through the grate. I'm looking down at him. And, you know, he moves to my right. So I try to turn slowly. But, you know, that sixth sense of a deer kicks in. And he spooks again as I move. So he starts to trot a little bit. And I just do full draw in case he stops and gives me a shot. Um, He stops perfectly broadside at 20 yards. But I don't know. I watch all these videos and I'm like, I've never seen a deer just act perfect for me they always seem to like stop with something in front of them I mean some of that's the places I hunt right I I hunt some thick stuff lots of times but he stops at 20 yards with a black cherry tree covering completely covering his vitals I can see his front leg only so I put the pin right on his armpit and just wait for him to take a step you know 20 yards ready to douse him with a with a uh, mechanical that makes a two inch cut right Um, so he moves and I and I let I let one fly so I get that really good thwack. I mean, it sounded really good, but, but oh my goodness, no way. By 20 yards, he had blood just streaming down his back leg. He ran into the field, kind of broadside to me at about, you know, 100 yards. And at that point, about a quarter of his hind quarter was covered in blood. Uh, he went behind some trees, not to be graphic, but I'm just letting you know, just in case anybody else runs into this, right? He went behind some trees between me and, and the field, and I, I never saw him again. All right, so I did what everybody does. I'm like, that's a lot of blood. That seems to be like a femoral shot. So I Googled, I pull out my phone, I Googled femoral femoral artery shot deer. And it says, you know, nearly always fatal, but wait two hours. And especially given the blood I saw, I I thought I had him, but I was like, this is insane. I have no idea how I shot him in the ass. So I got a bit cold, so I just got down after about 30 minutes or so, and the blood trail was pretty insane. I had a good feeling kind of he was dead, but I still went back in the stand, and I waited about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, you know, after all, I've, I've never shot a deer in the ass and then had them die in 15 seconds, so I figured I'd give this one a little bit of a wait. So yeah, it, it turns out he died in the place I last saw him about 15 seconds after I shot him. And I've never seen such a blood trail. It was a seven point. It was not as big as the eight on camera. It actually wasn't the same deer that I saw that morning um, on camera. But it was a cool hunt in the swamp. Um, Nothing huge, but a big bodied buck uh, for the freezer. So what happened with the shot? I really have no idea. He either moved faster than I thought, and I actually shot straight on and shot him in the ass and, and cut both femoral arteries and hit kidney or the arrow ricocheted. There was blood and hair like directly behind the tree, not in sight of the stand, so possibly a ricochet. No idea. But the the arrow went completely through him. It hit both femoral arteries and kidney, or at least some combination of both. Um, And as I've been telling friends, it's the worst best shot on a deer I've ever made. I do want to caveat this by saying, don't shoot deer in the ass. It's not a good shot. It's super highly risky. Do the normal lung, heart, you know, neck, vitals thing. Um, Way, way more high percentage shot than this. This was a total mistake. Not sure how it happened, Um, but happy to have him in the freezer. My wife and I let him hang in the barn. 
um, from Thursday till Saturday um, and took most of midday and afternoon to butcher him. It was a really nice big bodied deer, right? If you're like me, it kind of takes a while because I'm really picky about my cuts and getting as much out of every animal um, as possible. So for y'all chasing deer, good luck. It's a great next few weeks for a lot of us. You never know when the big one's going to walk by your stand. It could be like noon, like last year when I was teaching class and my cell camera went off and told me on my cell phone, probably not best to look at that um, while working. So, Okay, so thanks for letting me share that. It was a fun hunt, a little extra meat in the freezer. So, But okay, back to ducks. Let's do a reboot of last week real quick. We predicted a pretty stale week for duck movement with a trickle out of the northern latitudes by early migrants. And we also predict not much for mallard movement, maybe a few out of the latitude of North Dakota. And to say about, you know, northern to mid-latitudes, but not much farther south. So for the most part, that seems to be what happened to midweek movement of ducks with them showing up in the Midwest and kind of mid-continent around Thursday. Mostly early ducks like widget and green wing tail and some pintails trickled out of the mid-latitudes to more southern areas, but not much else, right? In New York, the upper portions of the Atlantic flyway, we've been very slow. We're losing our early migrants. You know, we've been losing them for weeks without any major push of mallards into our area. For a lot of folks, seasons are now open or about to open. For our southern friends, I hope we sent you enough ducks so far to start the season. My concern is, you know, kind of quality continued migration so it doesn't get stale too quickly. More on that in the duck migration forecast later in this episode. Okay, so on to the topic of the week. Ducks run guns, guns don't run ducks. So what does that mean? It means when populations of ducks are high, we shoot more ducks. But very often, despite what seems intuitive, despite what we think, We don't actually drive duck populations by shooting them. I'm going to use three basic case studies to get this point across and provide counterpoints as well. One, I'm going to use mallards and other dabbling ducks and talk about their harvest in general. Two, Canada geese and specifically the Atlantic population of Canada geese. And three, Atlantic coast or east coast common eiders. I also want to caveat that I'm going to bastardize some of the science so that it is really digestible by a wide audience. So for those of you that are scientists or waterfall biologists in the bunch, please give me some space here. I'm going to speculate a bunch of times at well and talk about some unpublished information that we've kind of gleaned from others. First, understand that I'm going to be maybe a little bit, I guess people could take it as critical at times of adaptive harvest management, which is how we use a variety of data streams in a constant feedback loop to make objective decisions about harvest regulations for ducks in the United States. Adaptive harvest management, or AHM, is much better than a smoke-filled room of people looking at data and arguing for seasons that they like best. That type of decision-making is ripe for lawsuits from anti-hunting groups, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not been sued over waterfowl hunting seasons since the advent of AHM. So AHM is a good thing. The intent is to use the best available science and learning from the available science to objectively make decisions about seasons from a suite of regulatory alternatives. Most goals of AHM are to maximize long-term harvest while protecting the waterfowl population of interest itself. So that goal is certainly hunter-friendly, but other parts or the mechanistic parts 
are what are really controversial and at times can lead to conservative regulations that may kind of penalize hunters with more limited seasons and bag limits than necessary. Overall, I'm going to take the stance that for dabbling ducks, the ducks we talk most about on the Foul Weather Podcast, two-thirds of the U.S. waterfall harvest, for dabbling ducks, my stance is that guns typically don't run ducks, or shooting ducks is not the driver of their population under current regulations. We break waterfall harvest into two basic categories, and it makes a big difference what type of season we get based on if that mortality, the harvest mortality, is compensatory or additive. First, I'll tackle additive mortality because this is what most hunters think is happening, and in my experience, what most state and federal waterfall biologists will tell you drives duck populations because it more easily makes restrictive seasons and bag limits make sense. 100% additive mortality means that for every duck you shoot, that duck would have lived otherwise. When we talk about hen mallard restrictions, we do this because we think that if we don't shoot that hen, she will make it to the next year and have a chance to reproduce, thereby safeguarding the population from decline because of guns. If that was true, for sure, I'd be all about avoiding shooting hens. The other side of the coin is 100% compensatory mortality, or that every duck you shoot would have died from something else anyway. In this case, shooting ducks has zero impact on the long-term population. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. For mid-continent mallards and many AHM models for other species that help us make decisions, the choices are pretty consistently simply additive or compensatory, when the reality is likely somewhere in between or maybe partially additive or partially compensatory. If we think about hen mallard survival as the metric for population success and survival of hen mallards being affected by percent harvest mortality for females, the current 100% additive model has a fairly steep slope so that hen mallard survival instantly starts to decline as percent harvest mortality of females increases. Alternatively, under compensatory mortality, hen survival is considered perfectly flat until a certain threshold of percent harvest, which is also not likely the case. Actually, the effects of mortality are probably somewhere in between, with that slope of hen survival being much more shallow with increased percent harvest mortality, and then that stick kind of breaks at some point and becomes more additive, but still compensatory. Okay, so that's a lot to think about, but the point is is that harvest of hen mallards is currently typically below 10% of the population. When harvest percent harvest of hens was once 20 to 25%, right? That's right. In the 1960s and early 70s when there were way more, there were tons of duck hunters, hen mortality was much greater than it is now during the hunting season. 
However, hen mortality has greatly increased in summer or the breeding season. For example, in eastern North America for hen mallards, summer is making up 30 to 40 percent of the natural mortality. At the same time, mortality during the hunting season has declined to about 10 percent. This makes me really think that harvest is largely compensatory, right? Maybe if we shot more hen mallards, then summer mortality would flatten or decrease, possibly because of some type of density-dependent mechanism. But here's the real problem. The mortality of hens during the hunting season is so low that we are likely not able to properly test for additive or compensatory mortality because the breakpoint to start to ever see an additive or population effect are probably way down the spectrum, way further down than where we're harvesting. So this leaves the scientific community still reeling in discussing to what extent additive and compensatory mortality drive populations because it really matters a lot as to what your regulations look like. If mortality is primarily compensatory, then we're just harvesting the surplus that would not really add to the population for future generations anyway. These models also consider ducks as all the same, all having the same probability of survival, and that's likely not true. There are likely ducks that are just not built for surviving, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's probably super hens that are nearly impossible to kill and always produce a huge clutch of like 12 eggs and fledge these ducks into the population. Like people with different skill sets, there's ducks with different abilities, right? So the next time your buddy kills a perfect-looking Drake Mallard that just drives into the decoys and he's not paired with a hen, he's all alone, you can just let him know he's shooting dumb ducks. All right, so what else do we have going on here? Let me think. Oh, yeah, when there are more ducks, you shoot more ducks, right? But what also can happen is that is, is density dependence on the breeding grounds kind of kicks in at the same year as you shot a bunch of ducks. And that density dependence can kind of cause reduced hen survival and reduced reproduction because there's just less space for these hens and their ducklings. There's just not enough food, not enough space. And so, you know, hen survival can decline, reproduction can decline because they're using kind of marginal habitats. But unless you account for all of this variation, it can make it look like shooting ducks drives duck populations rather than habitat and waterfall population density also playing a role. So what's the takeaway here? I think duck biologists typically feed duck hunters a line of crap because it's easy to pull the lever of harvest regulations, but all other stuff that actually does more to drive duck populations is difficult to identify and difficult to change. My response, duck biologists, get to work. The duck hunters pay for conservation, so let's get it done and let us shoot ducks. The sky is not falling. And if it did, it isn't like duck populations couldn't recover. We could learn a lot by shooting less or more ducks, but right now we're just doing the same old, same old, and we're really not learning a lot. Given the decline in duck hunters and duck hunter satisfaction, maybe we find ways to make duck hunting fun again. I'm a fan of like a three or four bird splash limit, whereby we just shoot ducks and, and find out. Others will disagree, but dabbling ducks reproduce like bunnies when the conditions are right, so let's shoot them like bunnies. I don't know. Anyhow, there are a bunch of great duck hunting biologists on this and looking to find ways to sustain the objective decision-making of adaptive harvest management. We should improve our knowledge of what drives duck populations, but also look to improve harvest opportunities and reduce complexities in duck regulations. 
These are good years. We've been in liberal frameworks for a long time, which is great. And we have good duck numbers. But it really could be better and easier and more fun for all of us, I think. So as a quick sidebar, I ran an analysis a few years ago, getting back to weather stuff that we do at the Fall Weather Podcast. And, and I determined that for the most part, the mallard population did not directly impact the number of mallards harvested in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama those states farthest south in the Mississippi Flyway. Rather, the main driver of harvest numbers was more correlated with weather severity or the WSI that we use to predict duck migration. The the main driver of harvest numbers of mallards was more correlated with the weather severity index to the north. Interesting, for Arkansas, weather did not matter, nor did population size. Ducks, ducks just like to go to the big woods of Arkansas I think this is because the Corps of Engineers didn't fuck things up. They didn't mess with the hydrology like they did in other parts of the South. The point is that a huge mallard population itself does not equate to shooting mallards in the Deep South anymore. It once did when all winters were cold, but not now. So stay tuned to see if weather will drive them south for y'all this December and January. Okay, so now a counterpoint that differs from dabbling ducks. One last thing, though. We could probably just shoot blue-winged teal while they're here in the U.S. and never affect that population. But nobody wants to see a truckload, a bed, a truck bed full of dead blue-wings. So we have a pretty liberal limit, but it's still within some social carrying capacity. The point is that it's a duck we could likely shoot a lot more of with no impact under current habitat conditions. Okay, so here comes the counterpoint, the Atlantic population of Canada geese. These are long-lived animals relative to ducks. Hell, a drake mallard averages like 1.5 years before it's dead, so they breed and die. Canada geese much live a lot longer, like 5, 10, 15 years, and some don't even breed until they're 3 years old. They, don't, they also don't breed each year because it takes them longer to build up nutrient reserves at the right time to successfully reproduce. Many of the migrant Atlantic population Canada geese, I'm not talking about those temperate nesting giant Canada geese. People call them residents. These are like the foe of many golf courses. I'm talking about those that migrate to the Angava Peninsula in Quebec in the subarctic and then migrate down through the east coast to like the mid-Atlantic around Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware. A lot of them come right through us in New York. When these birds fail at breeding and it can be catastrophic losses, we must make a more restrictive season because we would simply be shooting breeding adults with few juveniles in that population to buffer the harvest. These Angava Peninsula breeding Canada goose failures have actually been increasingly happening in a changing climate whereby early summer nor'easter snow in the Angava have become increasingly frequent and just after hatch goslings get killed by snowfall i mean a hundred percent loss you know tens of thousands of goose and gander pairs in one week with complete loss of goslings when this happens for repeated years it is it's really difficult but biologists have to make that hard decision to restrict seasons and harvest one problem here is that many people see non-breeding canada geese from that temperate population coming back south after going north to molt their feathers these birds that don't breed in, say, the New York, Pennsylvania, Northeast region that are not ready to breed yet, fly north, molt their feathers, and then come back south, right? It's called a molt migration. Um, 
and a lot of people think they're part of that migrant population and they're screaming bloody murder about those damn biologists that don't know what they're doing. You know, I get this all the time. Look at all these geese and those fuckers give me one goose for 30 days. The reality is that at times restrictions are really necessary to save that migrant population, you know, and it might, you know, with those groups mixing together, Really, it, the only way to do this is to have more restrictive seasons during the migration period. Okay, so do I think it's over, overly restrictive at times? Yes, right? The large nesting, you know, temperate nesting population of geese could likely have some buffering effect. So the harvest on the migrants maybe isn't as bad as we think. Uh, but I don't know that we have a good handle on how that all works. Again, I, I give the biologists a lot of props here. They're working with uh, the information they have, and they're, I think they're making really good decisions to save that Atlantic uh, population of Canada geese. Again, right, not everything's uh, a mallard duck that reproduces like a bunny. All right, I'll end these case studies with eiders on the East Coast. Hat tip to Brad Allen. I worked for him. Um in Maine when I was the game bird biologist, but he was the waterfall biologist for years and his crew did some amazing work to capture molting groups of eiders and then trapping hens off nests uh, with, you know, with nets to ban thousands and thousands of eiders over the years to understand how eider hunting affected the population. When black ducks declined and other East Coast waterfalling wasn't that great, at some point folks started to notice, hey, there's ducks out in the sea, and sea ducks are this really huntable resource. And gunning opportunities for a while were really relatively liberal, but we didn't know what we were doing to those populations, right? The eider is a duck that does not breed every year and does not breed until it's you know often older, maybe three to four years old, and they only produce a few eggs each year. I mean, they also have to contend, I've seen this, it's gross. Uh, they have to contend with great blackback gulls that swallow eider ducklings whole, um, alive right off the water, right? Nasty critters, I guess, but a, a gull's got to eat too. So long story short, eider harvest was likely unsustainable at the current levels after we analyzed those banding data. I say we, the royal we, I wasn't part of that paper. Um, and slight restrictions were put in place to protect this breeding population. Right, eiders are a duck, but they don't re reproduce like bunnies, like mallards and other dabbling ducks, um, oh, and they can't recover from population declines as easily. So eiders needed to be harvested at lower levels because harvest of eiders can actually impact populations. Okay, so that's a lot, and I'd say we probably scratched the surface, but I want people to know that they should probably be more worried about duck habitat than duck harvest as a driver of populations. All that said, right, I have to put this caveat on there because I see somebody thinking this, always follow the proper harvest regulations for waterfowl and the seasons in your area. Alrighty, on to the forecast. The biggest news of the week is a storm system in the south that will bring between four to two inches of rain to areas of the Gulf Coast of Texas, southern Louisiana, and Mississippi and Alabama. The drought has been really rough in these areas, and I think this is the beginning of that wet pattern for the southeast U.S. that will come with this El Nino year, a very strong El Nino year coming. The Gulf Coast around, kind of centered around Houston, will get about three inches of rain on Monday. By Tuesday a.m., this will be on New Orleans with an estimated four inches of rain. Jackson, Mississippi on Tuesday night for about 2.5 inches of rain. And for the rest of mid-Mississippi and Alabama to the south, the northern regions of Mississippi and Alabama won't get this. 
but the, those areas from mid-Mississippi and Alabama south will get anywhere from two to four inches of much-needed rain. If you haven't pumped a wetland, if you haven't pumped water into a wetland, it would be good to do so about 24 hours before um, to start saturating these soils, kind of 24 hours before there's rain to saturate the soils so it can make habitat rather than just have that rain absorb like a sponge right into the wetland. So enjoy it, folks, that are getting this rain. It's about the best weather news we've heard in a while. WSI-wise, weather severity index-wise, it's a rough week in general. With warm trends throughout the week, especially in the mid-continent, where kind of places like the Corn Palace in Mitchell, South Dakota, are going to be in the 50s and mid-60s for highs this week. 50s and mid-60s in South Dakota in November. Ugh. I do expect a slow trickle of early dabbling ducks, but nothing notable. WSI values just over that threshold, so slightly decreasing um, out of kind of northern latitudes and some kind of mid-latitude areas at times, but slow trickle. Mostly conditions this week are going to kind of make hunting hard because ducks just won't need to feed much, you know, most days with these warm conditions. So take advantage of what ducks you got. Don't be picky shooters this week, kind of in most places, right? I'd say, you know, look for those early early flights, uh, get a few ducks in that first in that first half hour, and then pick away at the trickle that comes in thereafter. If you haven't listened to episode 12, which is our seasonal forecast part two that talks about the weather forecast for the rest of duck season in the central Mississippi and Atlantic flyways, please do, because we, we expected this moderation in temperatures that we're having now following that stretched polar vortex event in late October that brought us cold. And we kind of explain in detail uh, why that, that stretched polar vortex happened and why we're seeing this moderation in temperatures now. Other events may happen that will make ducks make that next move. And the Foul Weather Podcast is prepared to let you know what week in late November or early December that that may happen. Right, So stay tuned each Monday morning for our duck migration forecast to find out when those ducks are going to move next. The coolest temperatures in the central Mississippi Flyway will be midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, in the far portion of the Mississippi Flyway on Friday. So maybe look for a few remaining pintails drifting out of the latitude in North Dakota and places a little farther south. But just not much to push ducks this week. No snow events really happening. Widgeon and green-winged teal that have remained at the far portion of kind of that migration train are most likely to make movements south this week. A bright spot, I'd say, is Ottawa, Ontario. It finally hits a value just enough to start to push mallards south. There's been a bit of snow through Quebec, and if it does snow in Ontario, in, in Ottawa, that may make a little bit of a push. So... Maybe a slight mallard migration into the Great Lakes region, but not much else going on. Best bet is for Monday night into Tuesday. There's also a bit of a north wind at times on both those days. And a little bit more on the Atlantic Flyway. We're at that point that, you know, widget and green-winged teal could start making small movements out of kind of the Chesapeake Bay region and into locations farther south late in the week. I'd expect that, expect that the kind of Madame Mesquite region in North Carolina will pick up these early migrants along with, you know, a few shovelers. So widget, green-winged teal, shovelers, and maybe a handful of gadwalls late in the week. So 
for those of you that are out there in that region, you know, let us know. We, we always like to hear from folks and get feedback on, you know, what we say is happening and what you're actually seeing on the landscape as well. So that's it for the week. Not a lot going on and not a lot to really forecast specifically, but when that next big uh, weather event happens or that trickle into your area happens, we will let you know. The Fall Weather Podcast forecasts fresh ducks. As I've said before, we can forecast duck migration. You'll know days ahead of time before they get to you, but we can't make them migrate for you. Of note, we got some really nice emails from our growing listener base thanking us for our unique work, our our unique listening experience. We mostly have been getting requests to run the duck forecast, the migration forecast for the Pacific Flyway. Unfortunately, our weather severity index migration models don't extend that far yet, and it's a pretty unique flyway in how things move. We are seeking funding to complete that work, but haven't been able to connect on uh, on those funds yet. We also got a cool request from a gentleman in Ohio, uh, sorry, I almost said Ohio, from a gentleman in Iowa that says he's you know really been a passionate waterfall hunter for about six years, and he and his buddies who just got into this um, and have been at it for a while constantly, constantly argue about how to set the decoys and asked us to do an episode on proper decoy spreads. Uh, I'm going with lots of laughs on that one. Um, there's so many opinions on decoy spreads and decoy types. Um, yeah, so we'll definitely tackle that one next week just for fun, but also cover some basics on decoy placement. Really appreciate the feedback, friends. Keep it up. We couldn't do this without our dedicated listeners. The Foul Weather Podcast forecasts fresh ducks. Know where the ducks are at before the ducks know where they're at. Shoot the ducks fresh from the north before they know where they are at. Spread the word about the Foul Weather Podcast. We produce the only duck migration forecast available. Hey, ducks are going to move. Ducks are going to migrate. Follow us to find out when and where. Remember to share, follow, and rate us for free. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, look us up on the web at foulweather.co where you can find episode links, recipes, and additional information about how to support the Foul Weather Podcast. We are the forecast to your next successful hunt. Thanks for listening, and as always, may your skies be filled and shoot straight, my friends. 